Hey, it's me, Chris T, back here for Job Story number 26, and this is part two of my conversation with Jesse P. Pollock, all about his new book, The Acid King, about some infamous murders that took place in Northport on Long Island in 1984. Let's continue with part two right now. So at this point, you know, to flash forward a little bit, he's sort of living uh, outdoors. He's trying to figure out ways to perhaps rig up some kind of uh, lean-to. He, he's, he, it's, it's really a hard scrabble existence for him. And then he gets robbed by Gary Lars. Gary Lars goes into his pocket uh, and takes... Uh, yeah, it was PCP... Um soaked mint leaves uh it was either sprayed with liquid pcp or dipped but uh but yeah they were mint leaves that you would just roll up in a joint and um he got he had just gotten them from the south bronx uh he was at a party at a friend's house and gary had showed up with him and by this point gary had become sort of a professional thief uh like i mentioned before there was midnight auto where he and his friends would break into parked cars at night and steal the stereos and fence them for money. They were also breaking into bars and stealing liquor and cash registers and even the phones off the wall. So, um, Gary was in this sort of Robin Hood mindset of, oh, well, you know, it's okay if I steal from a friend if I give it to another friend because then they'll like me. So when Ricky was passed out on this couch... He stole 10 bags of PCP out of his pocket, and um, after smoking one and deciding he didn't like it, he just gave um, the rest uh, away to friends. And uh, I guess he figured, well, no one saw me do that. I won't get caught. But someone apparently had, because Ricky found out the next morning. So... Ricky beat the shit out of him uh, when he found him downtown. Um, Gary, I think, had five packets left over and gave them to him. And he said, I'll get you I'll get you the remaining money for it. And it was they were ten dollars a packet. So we owed him 50 bucks. And over the course of the next two months, Ricky got paid back three times. Um, One of Gary's friends. A guy named Scott had given Ricky $50 and said, listen, please don't beat the shit out of Gary anymore. And this is what I was talking about earlier. He did have a core group of friends that really did care about him. They cared about him enough to give Ricky Castle 50 bucks to lay off of him. And then Ricky, at one point, I don't know why he did this. I'm guessing it's because it was a matter of pride. He went to Gary's house and knocked on the door, I guess, looking for some sort of confrontation. And Gary's mom answered the door. And said, what's this all about? And he said, well, you know, your son took something from me. And she said, well, what did he take? He said, well, $50. So she reached into her purse and gave Ricky Castle $50 and said, could you please let bygones be bygones? And then after that, Gary himself 
paid back $50. That's a, that's another myth in this story. Oh, Gary got killed because he never paid Ricky back. Not only did Ricky get paid back threefold, one of those times was by Gary himself. So now this, he's he's more than doubled his money, but he's still focused on revenge. Yeah, yeah, he's he's taking this all incredibly personally because, I mean, you know, probably the paranoia of all the drugs he's doing, but also at this point his, his family had effectively cut him off for good. Uh, there was uh, a scene that is described in the Rolling Stone article, and it's expanded on even further in the book, where um, his two days before the murder, his father took him to his court date for the grave robbing incident, and then on the way back to Northport, he asked his dad, like, can I have 50 cents for a bagel? You know, I haven't eaten in days. And his father said no. He just dropped him off in front of that head shop, which had a deli next to it. That's where he wanted to get the bagel from. And said, don't call me anymore. Don't ever talk to your sisters ever again. We're done with you. So by this point, you know, like I said, he's already paranoid um, because of the drugs. But his brain's in survival mode. He's been living in the woods off and on for three and a half years by this point. His chief way of making money is drugs, which his friend, this kid he had known since second grade, you know, just stole from him like it was nothing, humiliating him, essentially. So I honestly think by this point, he felt he had nothing left to lose and just snapped. So this all takes place in front of other witnesses, by the way. This is um, a meeting in the woods. They go into the woods where they've, they've gone many times before. They have a little spot where they like to go and hang out and party mm. and uh, play guitar or listen to music or whatever else it is they want to do, drink beer. And... um so there's a, a couple of other people there, aren't there? There's uh, Albert Quinones, and who was the other person? It was uh, Jimmy Troiano, who was who was a friend of Ricky's uh, since junior high. They were on the football team together. But Jimmy was largely missing from the story at this point because he had been in jail for, uh, I want to say, six or seven months at this point. You know, and He had just gotten out of jail only uh, a day before the murder, and he was in for robbery. That was another big problem. If the kids in Northport weren't um, in the woods smoking PCP, they were breaking into your house when you were on vacation or they were breaking into your car. There, there was a big crime problem with teenagers in this community because, you know, their role models, the people that should have been looking out for them, the second these kids acted up, just said, fuck, you get out of my house, as we talked about. Right, and, you know, the, what fuels their drug purchases is their robbery. So, I mean, uh, the, the two go hand in hand. So that Oh, of course. They're trying to get some money for drugs, and they're going to steal your TV to do it. Mm -hmm. There they are in the woods. And, it, I mean, the way you write this, by the way, and I, and I really, if I haven't complimented your technique enough yet, I'll do so now because. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I mean, there are elements of this that are almost, I mean, like a comedy. I mean, the, the way it plays out almost in slow motion, the mm -hmm. murder of this kid. It seems, in a lot of ways, unintentional. It's it, it's totally it, it, there's. I mean, even though Ricky is pissed off and Ricky is focused on revenge, there's not a lot of premeditation here. It seems like it just happened. I think it was a rage killing. I honestly think it is. You know, there, there have been some rumors over the years that supposedly he had planned it earlier that day, and supposedly, um, if you believe the testimony of Triano and Canones. Um, at some point, Ricky may have said, uh, you know, yeah, I'm going to kill Gary when we get in the woods, you know, but 
by that point. All that came out during the trial later. So you don't know if any of that's true. You know, these kids are all trying to look back on a night where they were on every drug that they had access to. Um, it really is incredible what they were all doing in the woods that night. They were smoking uh, PCP-laced pot. Um, you know, I think a dozen bags, Troiano said that they had smoked. And then they were also taking those purple microdots, which, you know, for those of you who don't know what they are... Um, Back then, everyone called them mescaline, but they w they weren't actual mescaline. What it was is this weird concoction of low-grade LSD, you know, strychnine, which is rat poison, essentially, and a little bit of PCP mixed together into this little tablet, and you'd swallow them, and you would get, like, uh, sort of, like, acid light. It wasn't, like, incredibly... Um, vivid hallucinations, but it was a psychedelic experience. It's that shit that Sherry from Bay Ridge gave me one time. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, here, have this mescaline. Okay, why oh, not? Man, but and, you, you, and then we'll go to Coney Island. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> so, they're, they're doing all of this, you know, smoking bag after bag of PCP, swallowing purple microdots. Drinking beers. They're getting hammered. They're having a good old time. They got they got Ozzy on the boombox. They got a little fire going in the woods. And I honestly think it was a fight that got out of hand because they're, they were antagonizing him in the woods. You know, um, it, it had been a rainy summer at that point. So a lot of the wood they were trying to start the fire with was damp. They weren't having a lot of luck. So they're like, oh, hey, Gary, you know, throw your socks in. Okay. And it's like, hey, Gary, you know, throw your jacket in. Oh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to throw the whole jacket in. How about just my sleeves and I could turn into a cool metal vest? So once he does that, hey, Gary, how about you throw your hair in? And so there's a scuffle. They're cutting pieces of the kid's hair off to throw in the fire. And then eventually Casso stabs him um, at the very least 22 times. They found 22 holes in this kid's jacket. You know, the most that we know, because as I said, the, the trial testimony is so convoluted. Um, the people that were there at the trial that had witnessed the murder, they were high that night as well. There were also deals dangled in front of their face by the prosecution. So we can never know 100% what happened in the woods that night. And that's why I don't um, do a dramatic, you know, beat for beat telling of the murder itself. The murder happens off screen in my book. And then through the recollections of everyone else in the story, you kind of piece it together in your head the way that you feel that it happened as the reader. Yeah, not to um, invoke Rashomon, but everybody does have a different thought of what took place there. And memories are unstable and unreliable. So we uh -huh. sort of have to, we sort of have to piece it together ourselves, which is another great thing I think you do in the book. But for me, the most poignant part of that night is is what Gary says, his, his final words. And this thought of like when it must have dawned upon him that they were that that this is the direction things were going because he gets up to run away at one point. He's dragged mm -hmm. back as well. There, there are moments when this could have gone a different way. Uh, and then that moment is lost. And and to to think of what Gary Lawers must have been thinking when he realized that this had gone over the edge and there was no coming back from this is really the horrifying aspect of this story for me. Well, and, and I'll throw you one even better that I hadn't considered until a friend of mine um, 
also from Northport, told me, um, Brendan Brown, the lead singer of Weedus, who is uh, who's actually a character in this book. So um, if you're a fan of his music and you're a fan of true crime, you're going to get a twofer with this because it is very incredible how like a lot of people um, who later went on to make something of themselves had these interactions with Casso. Casso also knew the Falco family. Edie Falco, you know, went on to become, you know, one of the best actresses out there. And Casso bullied Brendan Brown, as I said. And one of the things that Brendan told me when we were discussing the case many times over the three years it took to put this book together, he goes, you know, I think the most unsettling thing for me about this is Gary died on acid. He's like, can you imagine how horrifying it must be to be stabbed to death while on acid? So it's it's just a horrific uh, notion, no matter how you look at it, with these kids in the woods that just, just destroyed their brains that night on drugs. And then, you know, a knife gets pulled. All of a sudden, these two are on the ground, um, by all accounts. He's stabbing him in the back and the chest saying, say I love you, Satan, which was later, you know, uh, modified by the press into say you love Satan, and then later became the title of the book. It's also a podcast that's out there. But um, over and over again, say I love you, Satan, say I love you, Satan. And at one point, Gary says, no, I love my mother. And finally, in his dying moments... I guess he thought, well, maybe if I say it, he'll stop stabbing me. And finally, he said, I love you, Satan. And Casso didn't stop. So he died in the woods that night. And they covered him up with a uh, an assortment of fallen leaves and branches and left him there and spent the next two weeks bragging to their friends that they had killed him. And they even went as far as leading tours to the body. Um, river, You know, later on, this was... Uh, kind of echoed in River's Edge, which is based on a different case, but there are there are a lot of similarities there. It's right, that a was a murder in California, me. if I remember, that of a girl that, uh, in 81, I believe, where they were leading people to the body. I mean, I, that's one of the films... Yeah, Marcy Renee Conrad. Right, you, you mentioned in the book that there were films and other works of art that were, that used this case as an inspiration, but... Um, and there's more details, by the way, you have to get the book, you have to read the book, because even though we're laying out what happened here, um, the book is, you know, it, it, it takes a full immersion into this. It takes you back to Northport. And, you know, let's pivot at this point, because we've been talking for a while about the case, and we'll leave uh-huh. the aftermath of the case to people who want to go out and get the book. They can read about what happens with the trial and so on. I Because this is a podcast about working in jobs, I do want to get into your career as a writer, as a journalist, uh, you know, what you did before you started writing for a living and your methodology, how you approach something like this where you have a multi-year essential, essentially an investigation on your hands that you have to undertake. So speak to the working aspects of what you do for a living for a moment. Well, this all came about kind of as a, an accident, <laughs> Almost. I mean, I started out writing uh, by sending in letters and articles to Weird New Jersey. And it, it wasn't anything that I thought was going to become a career. Like, I, I had always wrote as a hobby, mostly horror fiction, like, you know, little Stephen King ripoff short story, stuff like that. But as far as true crime goes, 
you know, as we talked about on uh, Aerial View uh, three years ago with uh, with Mark on with us, um, it was just this weird story came into the offices at Weird New Jersey. Uh, Mark did a great long-form article about it in issue number 22. And then the story kind of died, this tale of Jeanette De Palma, this girl who vanished while hitchhiking back in 1972. And six weeks later, her body was found on a cliff known to locals as the Devil's Teeth. They couldn't pinpoint a cause of death. They don't know who she spent her last moments with. They don't know how she got up there. All they know is she's found dead on this cliff, very decomposed, and supposedly there's an arrangement of objects around her, which a lot of people have interpreted as a cult. So, a few years after this article had come out, I revisited it while flipping through some back issues, and I thought, you know, wow, you know, this case is so strange. It's it's like Twin Peaks. It's, you know, later on, a lot of people saw some similarities between it and True Detective. It's this incredible story. Someone must have written a very good book about it by now. And I checked Amazon, and no one had. So I figured... Well, I really want to read a book about this case. This, there's something about that case, much like the Castle case, that just sticks with you. you. You need some closure. You need answers. You need the why, the how. So I said, well, I guess if I want to read a book about this case, I'm going to have to write it. So Mark and I teamed up, and we re-interviewed everyone who was still alive that would talk to us. We tried valiantly to get a hold of the original case file and that's a whole you know labyrinth right there that we don't have time to get into um but basically started from scratch to try and tell what really happened to this girl and that resulted in the book death on the devil's teeth and you know from there as i mentioned at the beginning of the show that opened up the door to discuss another prototypical satanic panic case the casso case so as far as the methodology goes, it was basically we had to put everything in a pile and rebuild everything from scratch. Because when you're dealing with cases where they're either, like with the De Palma case, um, for instance, it's a total 180 of the Casso case. With the De Palma case, there was very little newspaper coverage. Only like three or four papers covered it, and it was for less than 10 days. Some people allege this was by design. But... You know, from there, it's okay. We have, I don't know, 15, 16 newspaper articles. Where can we branch out from there? Well, this cop is mentioned in this thing. Let's uh, see if he's still alive. Okay, check the white pages for, you know, Donald Schwartz. Oh, okay. Well, Donald Schwartz still lives in New Jersey. Let's get him on the phone and see if he'll want to be interviewed. And then Donald Schwartz says, well, you need to talk to my partner, Ed Kish. He, you know, he lives in Virginia. So, okay, well, let's get Ed Kish on the phone. And then Kish says, well, you need to talk to... So like, it, it branches out into this spider web of intrigue. And that's, you know, how we basically put it all back together with that case. is just re-interview and re-interview and build our own case file from scratch. And are you making diagrams on your wall at this point? Are you using a lot of string? Are you... What are you... What are you how, how are you put piecing this together in your brain very scatterbrained you know it's one of those things where i'll think i have something figured out and then at two in the morning i'll wake up in a cold sweat and go oh my god you know that's how she ended up on the cliff or 
oh man, that's why this person said that. It, it was very, um, it was like building this whole universe, this this story where you've got, you know, political intrigue saying it was a cover up by the the chief of police because his sons were somehow involved. And oh no, well, it was actually a satanic cult killing because the leader of her evangelical church said so. And then other people like, no, it may have been a serial killer. You got to understand there were other girls going missing at the same time. So, okay, now we need to go interview the family of those girls. It was, we must have interviewed close to 50 people for that book. And keeping it all together was just a matter of making sure everything is digitized and backed up and kept into their own um, respective file folders. Um, the closest thing, though, that I did do to that is I did draw out a map at one point of uh, the location where all these bodies were found, um, just to check distances, patterns, and all that. But, yeah, you do kind of get in that Robert Graysmith kind of, you know, sleuth mode for a bit there because just when we thought the story was going to be cut and dry, like, okay, obviously this girl wasn't killed by cultists. Let's find out what really happened to this girl. And then, like I said, oh, no, chief of police covered it all up. It's got to do with that. Or, no, serial killer operating in Union County. No, 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 no. Uh, demon cult from the Watchung Reservation. It, I don't know. I, I don't think we could have ever predicted that it went in as many direct, uh, directions that it went in. Talking with Jesse Pollock, the new book is called The Acid King, Evil Dwells Among Friends. This is Job's story. Let's wrap up by having a brief discussion, if you will, about the rise of true crime. I, I think this is something that sticks in your craw a little bit, the way it sticks in mine. I mean, I, f I consume true crime. I, I'm, I just watched the second series of Making a Murderer. Uh, is it good? I, uh, it's... It's a slow going until like episode five, and then it picks up steam. They oh, okay. they really did a lot of. Uh, I said to to Sweet Tea to to my wife, um, I, you know, some of these scenes they really could have edited them down. They just they spent an enormous amount of time on you know the slow moving parents of Stephen Avery, for instance, to really hammer home this point that these people are in declining health. I mean, you you kind of uh -huh. got you got that pretty quickly. We didn't need umpteen scenes of his mother being un unable to stand up and walk and so on uh, and 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 i guess this is my problem with the true crime resurgence uh in the first place because i mean we, we've we've gone through true crime periods in this country and we're we're now firmly back in one and would you say it's mainly because of podcast or would you say it's because of the success of serial or making a murderer or what why true crime all the time at this point i think it's all benefiting each other um i think the real big catalyst for this was uh david fitcher's film zodiac coming out in 2007 now that was a film that did not do very well at the box office because i mean in my opinion that film is a masterpiece it's one of the, the greatest films ever made uh, certainly one of the best films i've ever seen um but it's not something it's not something the general public like a majority of people are going to be able to consume and get all of it it's very layered it's uh they went to great pains to be historically accurate for the period um some liberties were taken with the story for dramatic purposes but by and large it, it is this uh labyrinth to go back to that word of true crime intrigue 
that shows how, um, you know, a, a, a seemingly small set of murders that took place in a, a very isolated uh, period of time can uh, snowball into this, you know, descent into obsession. Uh, it was a very, very good portrayal of that. So while it did not uh, ignite all of pop culture, the right people, I think, saw it. I know I was one of them. I've talked to a lot of big names in the podcasting world and the true crime genre that feel the same way. And I think that was the lead up that when um, podcasting, all of a sudden people realized, well, hey, this isn't this just isn't something that Ricky Gervais and Joe Rogan can do this. You know, I can get a microphone. I can get a little Zoom recorder and a mixer. I can do this that I think people realize like, okay. I could do what the Graysmith character did for my podcast. And the the resurgence, I think, can all really be laid down to that. And then when Serial came out, and this whole first-person narrative of, I'm going to show you the ins and outs of re-examining an old true crime case and going step-by-step with you, and you're all coming along on this journey. I think that was the real nail in the coffin there. That people realized, oh my god, I could totally do this. So uh, it was. I think it was a big lead up from that film. It got the right people interested in true crime. And then when Serial came out, people realized, okay, this is definitely something people are going to be interested in. So I can do this too. And Zodiac, if you're not aware, is a film from 2007. You mentioned David Fincher directed it. Had if memory serves, Jake Gyllenhaal was in that, Robert Downey Jr.'s in it, and uh-huh. it examines the Zodiac killings. Uh, it is all about Iron Man and the Hulk trying to stop a serial killer. It's it's it, In my memory, it's a great film, and I believe if you, if you have... Uh, it's available in any number of places, but uh, I think it's on Amazon if you want to watch it. Um, so what are the true crime... Approaches that really turn your stomach because I I think you and I agree on the type that um, is sneering at at uh, someone's murder or finding humor in it somehow or otherwise turning it into some kind of joke. I mean, there there seems to be a bit too much of the kind of stuff that forgets the victim. There's a lot of that. That's the obvious stuff. Stuff that just turns it into. Uh, glorification of the killer things that leave out the nuance the the actual reasons like we, we just spent a whole hour talking about what led up to the casso case and we only scraped the surface like there's a lot to these stories um i hate it when the societal effects are completely negated when people talk about like oh you know they were bad to the bone from the start it's like no these people these killers aren't created in a vacuum, you know, dig a little deeper, find out what really led to this. Because this whole idea of no one can ever tell when someone's going to go rotten, when someone's going to become violent, someone's going to become murderous, it lets society off the hook. It, it, it doesn't give us the chance to look inward and go, oh, well, maybe I should treat my teenager a little better so he trusts me. And doesn't lash out at people around him or turn to drugs or or anything else, uh, destructive behavior that could lead to something horrible like this happening. Well, that's or, why you just spent 40 pages contextualizing this thing. I mean, I think what you're saying is there's no context with a lot of these yeah, podcasts no. in particular. It's just sort of this titillation factor and this fascination 
with, as you put it, the murderer and not the murdered. Yeah, it's just like, uh, you know, Ted Bundy was born, yada, yada, yada. And then the heads were found on this mountain. It's it's just like people people don't, and I get it, people like blood and gore. That's why we watch the Amityville horror films. That's why we watch the Jason movies and all that stuff. And that's nothing new in our culture. You know, the Penny Dreadfuls were, you know, some of the earliest uh, sensational true crime reporting uh murder ballads have been around long before punk rock and heavy metal ever were and you mentioned so, true detective uh, that was a magazine right yes. before hbo turned it into a One tv of show many true detective real detective stories real crime this crime that crime ec comics did uh, a whole line of stuff like that so it's a very american phenomenon well, the lurid you know, is meant to like lure this. you in. I mean, that's why it's lurid. It, it it pulls you in, and people are fascinated because it's aberrant behavior. We all want to know wh- why people ran off the rails. Uh, yeah. But I, I think that's bringing us back to the criticism of some of these podcasts is you're not really getting that from these podcasts. You're not getting why these people ran off the rails. No, you're getting ghost stories. You're getting, you're getting campfire tales. And that's not to say they're all like this. There are some incredible podcasts out there that take the time to do multi-part series to give you the context criminology uh hosted by my friend mike morford is a, a great podcast that will take the time to break things down into i think their their zodiac series i think was 12 episodes long and i would i would endorse crime town the first season of yes. crime town was fantastic um, yeah, you're right. There are people who are, uh, you know, obviously they have the resources and they're doing a deeper dive, but it just seems like uh, some of these folks are like, oh, what can I talk about that's going to bring people in? I know crime. And yeah. they take a very surface approach to it. So, Well, that's the punk rock backfire of it. Like I mentioned before, when people heard Serial and, and the work that Sarah Koenig did, a lot of people, and this isn't, this isn't downplaying the work that Sarah Koenig did, it's just people heard that and went, they were inspired. They said, I could do that. And like when people f- saw the Sex Pistols at the Manchester Free Trade Hall, you know, the, the members of... uh a, a series of other punk rock bands, you know, Joy Division was there, and they all said, we could do this too, but then you get a hundred other shitty bands after that, you know, a cookie cutter punk rock. Yeah, and you see a lot of that with podcasts out there right now, and I'm not going to name names, because, you know, I'm a podcaster, you're a podcaster, so this isn't about throwing shade at people, but I mean, you know, it, it is an obvious thing. There are a, a million shows out there where it's it's very obvious that they're just taking the approach of, oh, well, I could just read Wikipedia articles about murders verbatim and then ask for Patreon money. Let's wrap up real fast here with Jesse Pollock by uh, mentioning how we met in Northport a month ago. Uh, that was so cool. It was really cool because I hadn't been on Long Island since my mother passed away. I think that was like 2013. So it had been a few years and I hadn't been to Northport since much earlier than that. Um, and so I met you there because you're working on a film that yes. fleshes out some of what we are reading about in The Acid King. Any any um, ETA on the film? How's it going with post-production? Are you still producing? Are you... Post-production's going great. We're in the middle of uh, editing together all of the interview footage. We actually just started working on yours. Um, we got done editing the audio first. Now we're syncing it up to the uh, the video files. 
And then um, from there, we're going to start assembling it with all of the B-roll that we shot. We also have a ton of archival footage that we've uh, we've been granted access to. And um, something – I know a lot of people are frustrated about this, and I kind of was too, but it was a decision way above my pay grade. Um, the Acid King has no photos in it. Yeah. But all of those photos – and I collected well over 100 of them. Uh, for this book that ended up, they ended up going photo free. All of those photos are going to end up in the Acid King documentary. So, uh, if you think the story ends with the book, it doesn't. Initially, I was I was disappointed there was no pictures, but then I think it works in the book's favor. I mean, I whoever made that decision, I think it sets it apart from some of these books where you're like, let me go to the middle section and see the photo. Yeah, right? That was me as a kid. But uh, in the context of the book, it does, because I wrote the book as a narrative telling instead of being uh, an encyclopedic telling. So I think it worked in that sense that it's almost like, I would say sort of like in Cold Blood, it's a true crime novel, but it's not invented. It's just, it's it's told in a narrative way that it, it makes it easier on the reader as opposed to, let me give you uh, 45 cliff notes on this page. Well, you've done a masterful job. Again, my kudos to you, Jesse Pollock. The book is called The Acid King. It's available uh, on the Simon True imprint. You can go to simonandschuster.com slash teen. I feel weird saying slash teen after what we've just discussed Oh, wow, for the last yeah. hour. But there you go. SimonandSchuster.com slash teen is where you can find this. Books about slashed teens. Exactly. Um, and there will be more. I, I, I would imagine this is going to be a successful imprint because kids, I mean, teenagers read about crime too. It's not just us adults. No, not at all. Any any clue beyond uh, the film Acid King, what you might tackle next? Do you have any uh, thing on the, on the um, agenda? Uh, right now, my uh, my agent is working on pitching my third book to publishers, so knock on wood with that one. But uh, in the meantime, um, we're just getting ready to uh, release the documentary, um, which we're timing for the 35th anniversary of the uh, the, the murder in Northport. Uh, June 19th. Yeah, we're, we're, we're aiming for spring of, uh, of 2019, and right now the plan is to uh, distribute it through uh, Amazon uh, Video. So if you have a Prime account, yeah, you'll be I able do. to See? stream. There you go. You'll be able to stream it on there. Hey, I, ha I just thought of one last question, and I, you know, sure. I thank you for all the time you spent with us today. But what feedback have you heard from the people of Northport? Are they, uh, do they feel like this is a nuanced, balanced portrayal of what happened there the ones that you're hearing from uh it's been very humbling because that that's been the one you know bit of feedback that i've been dreading because these people trust you with something very sacred they trust you to tell their story they trust you to tell their story in a fair way um and you know at the end of the day it's they don't know me i'm some journalist that sent them an email and it's for a book I'm putting together for, you know, one of the biggest corporations in the world. So they're going to have reservations. So, you know, as the book has been rolling out these past two weeks, I've been kind of like watching my inbox going like, oh, man, I hope someone doesn't email me and go, I just read the book and I hated the way that I was presented in it. But so far, everyone I've heard from, they, they've sent me these touching messages saying like, you, you told the story the way it happened. You know, uh, it was a trip down memory lane. Uh, you really 
put things in the proper context and thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Wendy Casso sent me a very, very touching message about the book. Ricky's uh, counselor, Tony Ruggi, um, in the book also sent me uh, a very wonderful message. So, um, so far, everyone I that I interviewed for the book that has reached out to me since reading it, it's been overwhelmingly positive. So glad to hear uh, it. It's 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 been very humbling. Uh, again, the book we're talking about is called The Acid King. The author is uh, Jesse P. Pollock, and it's available from Simon & Schuster's new imprint called Simon True, available at simonandschuster.com slash teen. Jesse, thanks for spending so much time with me. I do appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Next time I'll come on and we'll talk about sh- more shitty job stuff, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get away from plugging books. That was part two of my sit-down with Jesse P. Pollock all about his new book, The Acid King, available from Simon True, a new young adult true crime imprint from Simon & Schuster. You can find him online at simonandschuster.com slash teen. Thanks again to Jesse. Don't forget, Job Story is available via Apple and Google Podcasts, Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and YouTube. Go to shows.pippa.io slash jobstory for details and submit your job story at jobstorypod at gmail.com or in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash jobstorypod. You can also record a job story of 90 seconds or less at speakpipe.com slash jobstory or record a longer job story by calling our job story line, Way for Job Pod. That's the number four. Way for Job Pod. Please share Job Story with your friends and family and be sure to review Job Story on iTunes and elsewhere. Until next time, this is Chris T. Working hard and hardly working. You guys are my new co-workers. No? Working hard or hardly working? <laughs> I said, working hard or hardly working? Working hard or hardly working? Working hard or hardly working? It's a simple question. Are you A, working hard or B, show? <laughs> Suppose you tune in next week to see if I'm still on the job.